Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and you're listening to But That's Another Story from Macmillan Podcasts. As Emily Bronte wrote in Weathering Heights, I have dreamt in my life dreams that have stayed with me ever after and changed my ideas. They have gone through and through me like wine through water and altered the color of my mind. And recently, I got to talking about memories, dreams, and the transformative power of reading and travel with today's guest. I'm Andre Asiman. I'm the author of Call Me By Your Name and most recently of Find Me. Andre Asiman's novel, Call Me By Your Name, was adapted into an Oscar-winning film. He recently published a sequel called Find Me. His other works of fiction include Enigma Variations, Eight White Nights, and Harvard Square. He is a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center at CUNY, the City University of New York. I grew up in Alexandria, Egypt, at a time when I think no Jew should have been living in Egypt. By then, it had become quite um, difficult to be Jewish in Egypt. And uh, though we survived it for quite a while, until 1965, when they kicked us, my whole family, they kicked me out as well. Uh, And we had to move to Italy. He would write about this turbulent time in his memoir, Out of Egypt. Life in Egypt was good. Uh, We had a house by the beach. Uh, It was a wonderful way to live until things became more and more difficult to say ugly. And how old were you when the family moved? I was 14 years old. So I remember quite a bit about Egypt. The family was started by being huge. There, was, there were too many people in the family. But what happened is that after 1956, they all sort of one by one by one trickled out of Egypt and settled in Europe, South America, Canada, Australia, and so on. Uh, so that by the time I was, say, 12 years old, they were really my, just my grandmother and one of my great aunts, her sister. Those, that was the family, my father, my mother, and my brother and I. And uh, my father was seldom home. He was not living with us and was living what you might call a good life. Andre wasn't the easiest child. I know that people thought I was difficult. Um, I was... Um, Probably quite neurotic as a kid. I still am, but I know how to hide it. At that time, I didn't know. I didn't have many friends. Actually, I didn't have any friends. My brother was the one who had all the friends. He was very social. I didn't want to hang out with anybody. Didn't even see the need for that. So I didn't even envy friends. But I was withdrawn, sort of sulky. I think the family life was not a happy one. And I believe I bore the brunt of it, including my mother of course, but uh, it was a difficult point where you thought that everyone in the family didn't like you, and you kind of lived with that constantly. Um, Were you a reader as a child? As a child, no. I was not a reader. I looked at images. I didn't even read comics. I would look at pictures. I didn't know. This is a weird thing. I didn't know that you had to read the text of the comics. You just looked at pictures, (laughs) and that was good enough. And I'm talking until fifth grade. This is what I did. Eventually, I started reading books by a woman called Enid Blyton, not known in the States, but totally known in the rest of the world as, you know, writing sort of Famous Five or what? what is the equivalent of that in America? There's um, um, there's, there's Something Boys and then there's a... The, Hardy Boys. The Hardy Boys, yes. yes. It's the same idea. And I read that and I liked that. 
until my father, who was a good reader himself, said, what are you reading this trash for? And I didn't think it was trash. And I didn't argue with him because he knew better, of course. And he said, you should be reading serious books. What kinds of books did he steer you towards? Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights. <laughs> and I was 12 years old when I read it. And I think I spent a good part of the summer reading it. And uh, I even understood what Joseph, the character who speaks with this heavy, heavy sort of Yorkshire accent, uh, now I can't understand a word he's saying, but at, at the time I did, which is weird. Um, and But I enjoyed reading that very, very much. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte was published in 1847. Many readers become obsessed by the relationship between Catherine and Heathcliff that's at the center of this novel. It wasn't a happy book. It, it was tragic. It was profoundly tragic. And uh, I immediately identified with that. Uh, it had a, in other words, this character of Heathcliff was so dark and so unusual. I'd never met a character like that, not even in the films I'd seen. So suddenly there's this man who's fundamentally evil, and yet you can't always be against him. This is the funny thing. And I liked, of course, I like Catherine. I like the younger ones and the younger generation. And I knew everything. I recited the whole book to my friends because I was totally engrossed by it. What did you make of the setting of it? It must have seemed quite different. It was totally different, so different that I began to think England equals Moors. <laughs> uh, and and so I had this romance with Moors, and I wrote a very long poem, very, very long poem, about, you know, a couple riding in a carriage through the Moors. And, of course, it must have been drivel. I, I have no idea where it ended up. But uh, the fact is that uh, it was the, this whole idea of England, the Moors, this old world where I lived basically close to the Sahara, all right. So there was a complete contrast, and I wanted out of Egypt. So this was my escape. I escaped into the moorland with the Bronte sisters, and I was quite happy. He spent the long, hot summers of his youth being transported elsewhere through reading. We had two huge, huge verandas. And so one was in the morning was um, impossible to be in because it had too much sun. The other one had sort of shade. Then they switched. And so I always sat in the one that had no sun because the sun always gave me headaches. So I would sit in one of the two verandas on wicker chairs and basically absorbed and being elsewhere totally. I don't think I've ever been able to uh, sort of re recluse myself in such a way out of the ordinary world, except in the subway. Subways are, for me, wonderful places to focus on a book and to sort of fly away because you can't really be in a subway after all. So it's easy to escape. And so was Egypt was an easy place to escape as well. But life, after actually leaving Egypt for good, proved more challenging. Well, we arrived in Italy not because we felt Italian, but we had Italian papers. In other words, we had become Italian citizens through a rather arcane process that was not illegitimate, but it involved some money because we were recuperating a completely lapsed Italian citizenship. Uh, that went back a couple of generations. But we were in Italy. I didn't speak Italian very well. My mother, who was totally deaf, 
could not understand a word of Italian. And my brother simply just didn't want to speak because he was hiding behind me. So um, in many ways, here we are, all three of us, because my father is still in Egypt, and we have no idea if he's going to go to jail, if there's going to be trouble for him. So we are in Italy, and uh, we land in an apartment that is in the middle of a neighborhood that we didn't like. We're not used to that kind of neighborhood. And so we felt this is not the place we should be in. This is These are not the people we like. They don't even speak a word of French, much less of English. So you, you, you felt totally out, whereas in Egypt, people spoke French and people spoke English and they knew Italian as well. Um, so I felt totally out of my element and I hated it. I just couldn't like it. And so what the, my only solution was to lock myself up in one of the bedrooms that we had in this apartment that was not ours. It belonged to one of my uncles who made us pay rent for it, by the way. Um, he uh, the, the apartment was... Um, in a, as I said, not in a good place. So I would shut the shutters uh, and and read in the room and occasionally open just to let the sunlight in. But it was my way of resisting the notion that I was in a place that was not my home. Over time, though, Andre saw a different side to this strange new home. And, of course, what happens in Rome, is it was all happening in Rome, is that after a while you begin to discover Rome. And you find that, oh, this neighborhood is not so ugly. This is not so bad. I don't like this, but this is quite amazing. And one thing led to the other. And eventually I realized that this is a fantastic place. And I realized that, of course, given my usual modus operandi, I realized I was loving Italy more or less a few months before I left Italy for good. he began to develop routines that allowed him to explore the city. I used to go to bookstores every week. That was my errand. I had 400 liras to spend. That was my allotment. And the books cost 400 liras, so you had to, you needed 50 and 50 to come and go from home. So I, I, I made it, but uh, I would go to bookstores every week and buy one book, because that's all I could afford. And, um, and then I would just walk around the more or less sort of Renaissance Baroque Rome, which I loved a lot and still do. And I sat one day just to just rest, and an old, very, very fat gentleman sat next to me and began speaking to me. And I said, okay, let's see what this goes. You know, I, I was old enough to know better, but he was extremely nice, and he said, look at this statue, and it was Piazza Navona. And he basically described to me the three, the four statues, told me which, what they each represented, and what, the, how they were dialoguing between, you know, Bernini and Borromini, across from each other, and how they hated each other. And suddenly I realized this is fascinating. I would never have discovered this. And of course, then I said goodbye and I left. And I came back the next week, and there he was again. And so we sat and had another conversation, more education about the fountains of. Piazza Navona. And, uh, but then I never saw him again. But it told me, um, okay, you just happen to be here. Imagine how many other places you might happen to be in that will sort of also sort of blossom with such wonderful news. And that has happened to me all the time I'm in Rome. Every time I'm in Rome, I like to get lost in Rome precisely because a story will come out. He would continue to search for these kinds of moments in all sorts of places. When we come back from the break, 
Andre rereads Wuthering Heights and sees it quite differently. Are you a rereader? Did you go yes. back and reread Wuthering Heights? Oh yes, I've taught it a few times, and uh, and I've reread it quite a few times. The last time I reread it was in an edition that was given to me as a gift by one of my sons, which was a sort of a simulated uh, edition of the original Penguin with the three stripes of orange, white, and orange stripe. So he had found one, and so he gave it to me, and I reread Wuthering Heights for my own quote-unquote pleasure in that edition, and I was a bit annoyed by the book because I couldn't wait for it to end. Mm. And I said, I'm going to read this through because this is this is the the deal I made with myself back when I was, you know, 11, 12 years old, and I cannot just abandon this. So I read it through, but it felt like travail. And what did that tell you either about yourself today or yourself at age 11 or 12 when you that first I, read it? When I was a younger man, I was curious. I was at far more patience. In fact, I didn't know I had patience. I just delved into those books and you didn't ask too many questions. Right now, it's felt more, oh, God, this, this is going to take forever. I don't have the time. I should be reading other things. I have this to do, that to do. You have too many other things to do, whereas the summer of leisure to just to read is, has totally disappeared from my life. I want to talk a little bit about travel. Mm. And one question that immediately springs to mind is, did you go to the Moors? No, I didn't go to the Moors. I was, I was in Sheffield, which is not so far away. But I had no curiosity to go to the Moors. I should, I should eventually do a pilgrimage to see where the Brontes lived. But I know I'll be horrified by what I'll see, and it's not going to speak to me. The only other place I went to, I, I don't like sort of pilgrimages like that. I've done the Raskolnikov Walk in St. Petersburg, which you have to do. Uh, the other place that I went to, which meant a great deal to me as an idea, was Tintern Abbey. I went to visit Tintern Abbey. And, uh, of course, I took millions of pictures, and in, the, in my heart, I was totally disappointed. You know, you go to places expecting, what, to hear Wordsworth speak to you, and there was nothing going on. In other words, I brought me, the skeptic, me, the, the ironist, to a place that was supposed to evoke wonderful things, and it didn't. But I was happy that I did it, so at least I, I checked that one out. This idea of pilgrimages... Mm. Um, I'm guessing you encounter now a fair number of people who attempt to find the Italy that you wrote about and call me by your name um, and continued on. Uh, what, uh, what do you think of, of that kind of a journey? I think that uh, because the story is about love, so it already has a different sort of coloration, let's say. I mean, going to Tintern Abbey is you going there because Wordsworth was there with his sister or whatever, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing else going on. Okay, I mean, it's one of the greatest poems in the English language. Fine. But when you're speaking about Call Me By Your Name, there's Call Me By Your Name, the novel, and there's Call Me By Your Name, the film. People go to Crema where the film was shot, and they take pictures of themselves sitting in the very same spot where Elio and Oliver are supposed to have sat and walking with their bikes the way Elio and Oliver would walk with their bikes. So they're essentially immersing themselves into their city in order to um, not just intimate with, but to um, 
sort of to become the characters of the book, in order to find the kind of love that is being described in that film, in that novel. Um, I mean, if they wanted to be really faithful, they would look for a city called B, and they probably won't find it. But going to Crema is, is, is doable, and you have the same spots as in the movie. So they, they put themselves in positions where Elio and Oliver used to be, and then they have a picture taken of themselves. And it's very meaningful to them, and they're going there every year. And there are, it's become a tourist hub mm. for a love pilgrimage, call it that. I have no idea what else goes on, but something goes on. He revisits Wuthering Heights, but is content to let memories of the past remain in the past. Um, I, I, I like to stay put. Um, there are places that I do like, but I realize in, in retrospect that I like them as ideas, not as places to go to. So I like the beach a lot, but every single beach I go to, I can't wait to leave. In other words, after half an hour at the beach, that's it. You've been at the beach. Too much sun gives me headaches, so I can't stand it. So I want to go back. And in order to go back, you have to go back either to a house that's at the beach <laughs> or you have to take a boat and get out of the beach. And that becomes it becomes a whole production. So going to Paris is also wonderful in many respects because you seek Paris, the Paris of your imagination. And then you get there, and uh, it's never the Paris that you want. So I find that there's something that is, uh, my whatever it is that I'm looking for is never in sync with what planet Earth has to offer. Are you able, as a adult, a writer, or someone with multiple responsibilities, a family, are you able to recapture that kind of reading experience you had as a child? No. And no, absolutely, it's impossible to have it again. Uh, reading is, is basically, I, I like to tell people, did you have time this month to put your feet on the coffee table? And most people will say, I wish I did, I didn't really. And the kind of leisure that you need in order to sit on an afternoon, say in, in, on a Saturday afternoon, just to while away the time and read a book and be consumed by the book, uh, I find very difficult because there's always a competing thing, basically writing. In other words, if I have time, I'm, I should be writing, not reading. And they're, they're no longer competing because writing wins all mm. the time. And, and writing is, has become a way of being on this planet, in other words. Uh, I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I weren't writing. I probably would be reading again. But That's Another Story is produced by Christy Westgard. Thanks to Andre Asiman. If you'd like to learn more about the books we've mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. You can also find a transcript of this episode and past ones on LitHub. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at anotherstory at macmillan.com. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening.